I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be going into a bit of a different direction in so much as this is a whopping triple feature episode. We have three interviews, one show. Later on in the program, we'll be talking to economist David R. Henderson, who will provide an argument for why we don't need to fight wars for oil. David comes from a libertarian perspective. I know not all my listeners are of that persuasion. I don't consider myself a libertarian, except maybe in the civil sense. But I think that David and I managed to have a rather fascinating conversation that is worth a listen and relevant in the age of high gas prices, which, yes, we also talk about. That's in the final segment of our program today. Additionally, we'll be speaking with retired Major General Dennis Leach, author of the book Skin in the Game, Poor Kids and Patriots, a critique of the all-volunteer military system. He'll be speaking with us about an op-ed he recently co-authored with retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson on the subjects of vaccine insubordination in the military and dereliction of duty. However, before we get to that conversation, we'll first be speaking with Katrina Vandenhuvel, editorial director and publisher of the long-running progressive magazine The Nation about the Ukraine-Russia crisis and NATO, along with her late husband, the well-known Russia Studies scholar, Dr. Stephen F. Cohen. Katrina has had a keen interest in U.S.-Russia relations. So that'll be our first conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, a triple feature episode but before we get to that, a word from one of our sponsors. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. The magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling 
struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to get on the program for some time now. Uh, thanks to Matthew Ho, we were finally able to make it happen. Uh, Katrina Vandenhuvel, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Good to be on Parallax with you. Is Parallax View? Yes, Parallax Views, named after the the great uh, '70s paranoid thriller with Warren Beatty. <laughs> that was great. That was that was uh, akin to the Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to have you on the show uh, to discuss your thoughts on uh, this crisis that we're facing with uh, Russia, the Ukraine, and uh, NATO, and maybe we should just get into your basic feelings on where we're at right now, because uh, the news is developing quite quickly. So, you know, I think history matters. And to look at what's going on right now without a sense of history uh, is not helpful. Very briefly, NATO expansion, 1997, Bill Clinton. Russia was weak. The Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet Union's equivalent of NATO, had dissolved. But NATO was determined in the face of a weak Soviet Union to expand. Um, In 1997, by the way, there was a robust debate. You had people like George Kennan, the esteemed diplomat. You even had Paul Nitza, the hawk, Edward Lutwak. You had a range of people and senators opposing. And And these people, not to interrupt you, but a lot of the people you just named are basically, they were cold warriors. Well, you you also had people, I don't know if Senator Bradley, Gary, no, but absolutely. Lutwak, Nitsa, Richard Pipes. Richard Pipes was the art, you know, the icon of the conservative right wing. So there was a sense that NATO expansion was that an important part of a post Soviet Union security architecture. Finally, in the with the reunification of Germany in 1990, uh, Gorbachev was promised, not in writing, that. NATO would not move, quote, not move one inch eastward. If you think about it, the frontal lines with the Soviet Union used to be Berlin. Now it's on their borders. NATO has incorporated maybe 13, 14 states. And now we're faced with Ukraine and possibly Georgia. But NATO expansion is more than just 
an expansion of a, essentially a military alliance. This is not a coffee clutch. I mean, the members of NATO have to buy military equipment that is interoperable, and there are all kinds of demands of funding. And it's a military institution, so it has militarized Europe. The idea of Ukraine joining NATO has always been the kind of ground zero of controversy. You know, Ukraine and Russia are the two closest countries. There's intermarriage. So the the idea now of um, going to war because of Ukraine is nuts, as I write in the Washington Post. No American president is going to send American men and women at this time. Ukraine is not a national security interest for the United States. It is for Russia in the context, one could argue it's outmoded, but we had the Monroe Doctrine, we don't now, but imagine if Russia sent troops to Canada or was on the border in Mexico. This is what it arouses in a Russia which lost 27 million people in World War II with Germany up against the borders. So the hope uh, is that there's a exit Today, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia and Antony Blinken met. Uh, I gather the meeting was requested by the Russians. I think Lavrov is one of the most astute, effective diplomats. He's been on the scene for decades. He's seen a lot. He was very close to John Kerry. They did a lot of work together. So one hopes there's a moratorium, because I'll stop. But in fact, a lot of this is kind of illusory, because under the charter of NATO, Ukraine is not actually admissible at this point because its territorial borders are unstable. So it's not actually, you have to, you couldn't be admitted, nor could Georgia. But, you know, there's a kind of, I hate to use the term, but like a, a war lust. Certainly in our political class, I mean, Joe Biden brought in the blob, marinated in debacles in Iraq and Libya and Syria. And, um, you know, there's there's in the blob in D.C., there seems to be a one note. You know, I have no brief for Putin. I think he should have left office a decade ago. He's overstayed his welcome. But this kind of uh, demonization that passes for analysis uh, and this kind of call for sending men and women, these are armchair warriors. If they want to call for that, they should participate. Uh, so I think the worst case scenario is we begin to arm an insurgency. And I will, I, I will say, and I don't mean to be snarky about it, you know, how did that go in Afghanistan? That's actually been a big concern for me too, because I've been reading these articles about um, CIA training of, of forces in Ukraine. And we also have uh, articles in places like Newsweek talking about how elements of the US far right are going over to train with uh, Ukrainian far-right elements that are anti-Putin in a, an effort to learn new skills and their own, you know, sort of activities, their paramilitary activities, and also for recruitment reasons. So it seems like we could be creating a big problem here. I know, but I think it's, you know, these are times of kind of hybrid war. It may not be, I don't think we're going to see a full-out occupation as we did in Iraq. For, I mean, we may never see it again. But what we may see is what happened in Afghanistan, which is arming an insurgency. And you're right, there is kind of an international right, which has ties 
in Ukraine to the far right, to the extremists, the neo-Nazis. And then you have CIA advisors. You potentially have special ops. By the way, we are already 800 bases strong around the world. And according to Nick Terse, who follows this, I think we have 154 special op operations. You know, the Russia has two bases, maybe three, but two bases in Syria. They closed the one in Vietnam. We are overextended. I mean, that to me is one of the central issues. We have militarized our foreign policy and our thinking so deeply that it is out of sync with what the crises really are. You think pandemics, the existential crisis of climate, and you think staggering global inequality. And then, you know, this is how we're treating these times. So it, it's, you know, and then we haven't even talked. So we come out of Afghanistan, we come out of the quote, GWAT, one of the ugliest acronyms, global war on terror. The national, is it the national security strategy, I forget, it's the official kind of every 10 years, the strategy of the US overseas fighting force has decided counterterrorism, as you know, is now kind of second tier. And the new challenges are Russia and China. And it is dangerous. I mean, we have China, Taiwan, the issue of, you know, Taiwan, the South Sea. But I'll tell you one thing. This I remember during the Trump presidency when Les Moonves of CBS uh, said that, uh, you know, Trump might be bad for the country, but he was real good for CBS. I mean, these are bad times for many people, but not for the defense industry. And I don't believe that it's only the military industrial complex, but I do think they are making out like bandits because you, get, you, you need bigger equipment for China and Russia than counterinsurgency. So it's interesting because you mentioned, uh, you know, parallels between some of the things going on now and, you know, uh, the U.S. Uh, working with the Mujahideen. And I, I've right. been thinking a lot lately um, about the figure of uh, the late Shabignu Brzezinski, who's <laughs> a big foreign policy uh, character for a lot of my listeners. And it, it's interesting because I think even Brzezinski in his later years sort of softened at least a little bit on Russia at times. And I'm just surprised that a lot of people have completely hardened. Are we just living in this sort of nightmarish shadow of, of you know, our Cold War programming in some ways? I mean, have people really taken a lot of the fear-mongering we had during the Cold War and internalized it to a point where it sort of has stayed with us? It's a very good question. Let me just take, so I think of three periods, contemporary periods. First of all, Gorbachev. He was very popular in the West. Russia became, I mean, even though Al Haig, if your listeners remember him, he uh, said he, that Gorbachev was Stalin in Gucci shoes. This was not the case. Uh, so there was this kind of honeymoon between the United States and Russia. And then I would say how you think about the 90s in Russia and Boris Yeltsin defines a lot about how you think about Russia today. But, you know, Yeltsin was did drink a lot. <laughs> Yeltsin was not the dissident. He And Strobe Talbot, Clinton's advisor, once said, you know, he would do anything we asked. Russia was weak and the United States took advantage, which was a blowback into Putin. I like to tell people that Putin's first act in power, and he was selected by the Yeltsin family, was to give immunity to the Yeltsin family. And he was selected. 
And he faced a country that had collapsed its nuclear power plants. And it was just a mess because Boris Yeltsin presided over the looting of the country. He sold it to the oligarchs. Poverty was at a greater height than ours during the depression, et cetera. So then you get Putin. When Putin came to power, I remember the nation wrote, uh, I think I wrote it called Savior Putin. The New York Times, and it was critical, the New York Times and the Washington Post said, hey, we can do business with this guy. They thought he was like a Yeltsin, but younger and not a drinker. But he quickly took on the oligarchs and then he formed his own oligarchs and he restored the country. Did he restore it in too much of a kind of vertical where there was the repression that the uh, newspapers, media face problems? But um, the demonization of Putin, I date to 2007. The Munich Security Conference, the most kind of like the Trilateral Commission meets Davos, meets Halifax Security. McCain and Joe Lieberman sitting in the front row. Putin gives a speech and says, America, this is no longer a unipolar world. We're back. And I think that freaked people out. I know this is selective, but the idea that Russia was back, that it was a countervailing force, that it had its own interests and it had restored itself. Um, so McCain comes back to Washington, and I think there was a lot of work to demonize, and it wasn't difficult, demonize Putin. It, when you begin to demonize and tr treat foreign leaders as kind of Disney villain international politics, it's very easy to begin to lead to war. The final thing, the nail in the coffin, and my colleague Aaron Mate has done some, some superb reporting about this, Russiagate. I mean... I'm not even going to get into it, except that the foundational document, the Steele dossier, has imploded. But for five, six years, liberals were introduced to the idea that Russia had determined our election and Trump was Putin, Putin was Trump. And there you have, you know, so it was, you know, the demonization means a country has no legitimate interests. It's easier to go to war with a country which is demonized. And I will say as a journalist who has reported in Russia for 30 years, it's insane that it became Putin, Putin, Putin. You can't, re you can't report on Russia today without reporting on the power of the Russian Orthodox Church, the oligarchs, the rise of independent media, surprisingly, or the squelching of independent media and dissent, which happens often when hawks are ascendant. And they are in this country and in Russia. It's important for me that you brought up Russiagate and, and the Steele dossier because uh, well, I feel like there's been very little self-reflection about the Steele dossier now that it's you know become very clear that this was a dubious uh, document that we enterprise. shouldn't have. What's that? It was a dubious enterprise, had a lot of money in it. Um, I totally agree. I think Eric Wemple of the Washington Post, to his credit, did a nine-part series, kind of Rachel Maddow looking at different people who had been, but in general... I mean, the Wash, you know, the New York Times won a Pulitzer for much of its for, for some of its Russiagate coverage. And the Washington Post, in fact, did some, they removed a story, which I hate, you know, hate the idea of removing from the internet, but they took down a story and edited it heavily because it was proved wrong. And but the Russiagate, I will say Russiagate continues. It's a toxic flow in our uh, body politic. 
And I guess what I was going to add to that was, you know, what scares me at the moment we're in, it almost feels like there's a, a conspiratorial minded ultra nationalist sort of sentiment uh, that I see in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I think of Republican or right wing elements saying, oh, uh, the, the CCP is controlling Joe Biden. And then on the other hand, you have a version of that with, I think, a lot of Democrats saying Putin controls everything. And it, it seems like a really kind of repeat of these sort of like Bircher-esque talking points wherein the U.S. doesn't have its own problems. It's always the external enemy from without. You know, there's never internal issues that the U.S. has to face. You know, I think that is a major problem that we don't get our own house in order before we go out. I do think conspiratorial mindset has been with us for many, many years. You think back, even like the Roosevelt years, Father Coughlin, you know, you had a subset and you mentioned the Birchers. The distribution mechanisms now are staggering and, you know, shambolic. Um, So you get all this stuff in a tweet and this and... um, but I do, I do think people are confused. I think this is a confusing time. I think the Trump years were kind of Alice, you know, dangerous, but like Alice in Wonderland, like, you know, it was kind of, if he said something that kind of had made some sense, it was immediately, for example, I'm thinking he said, um, I know he would say things and it was immediately reflexively denounced. Uh, and he was incoherent and narcissistic and it's tragic because the idea of endless war was something he ran on and then he betrayed. And he brought in some of the worst neocons like John Bolton, who unraveled the scaffolding of an already fragile nuclear uh, security uh, architecture. But you're right, it's a very confusing time. And I think Russiagate played into it, was conceived, I think, and moved around effectively with some money. And um, it's going to be very hard to untether that from our psyche. Just uh, maybe one or two more questions. Sorry. I know you mentioned uh, earlier uh, George Kennan and others who were opposed to NATO expansion. Uh, I feel like uh, so many people, when you bring up the issue of, you know, maybe uh, NATO has expanded too much. Uh, Maybe we should be rethinking uh, NATO. Uh, There's a knee jerk sort of reaction to that at times. So maybe you could explain what are the, the best arguments uh, for why we need to rethink NATO? To me, one of the best arguments is a belief in alternatives. I mean, we could have had a very different security architecture that was not militarized. This is a heavily militarized institution that in my mind is obsolete for these times and is kind of, a, as I said, a military club and it, it, there were things on offer. If you read uh, their books about, and the National Security Archives, your people should go, it's a group in Washington. They've done extraordinary work with primary documents showing that for a moment, George H.W. Bush, Gorbachev, uh, Helmut Kohl, there was talk of just a common European home from Vladivostok in Russia to like Lisbon, which wouldn't have been militarized. If people, you, who listen to you have a problem with the military industrial complex, this is a one of an example where we could have had something. And I think the funds that could go to climate and the other things we spoke about are depleted by NATO. Furthermore, NATO is threatening. 
And by the way, it, it's expanded enormously. Now it is the case, and in Ukraine should be free and independent. And people say, why shouldn't they be able to join NATO? Well, I can come back to the fact that uh, Ukraine should be free and independent, a bridge between East and West, but NATO is a commitment to a militarized alliance. And I think, as I said, it's obsolete and there are better ways of securing our security. And by the way, what is security? That, that's a big, you know, is it military security that we care about, human security? I mean, I do think in these times, it's a moment to rethink. I would say two things. I hope your listeners will come to the American Committee for East-West Accord, a group I've been running, and also the Quincy Institute, which has been a good alternative pole of thinking and action in DC in these last two years. I've, I've had Anatole Levin and uh, a number of other Quincy Institute scholars. Very on. good. And it, it's about restraint and dialogue, diplomacy, and as much as one can to avert military conflict. Why do you think that- In the nation, come to the nation. <laughs> I was gonna say, why do you think we've in a lot of ways seemingly forgotten the role of diplomacy when it comes to dealing with these international relations situations, uh, especially with regards to Ukraine and Russia? And what can we do to you know, reintroduce diplomacy into the mix? I think, you know, I think we have to begin. I've always believed whatever we can do to end the scourge of war. I mean, we've forgotten. I mean, the, the costs of war, not just the financial, but the human costs. I mean, millions of people are displaced by war now. And I think, I just think we've lost sight of peace. Peace has sometimes become a wussy word, but peace is not just the absence of war, it's also justice. And diplomacy, I think, has been downgraded because it became associated with, you know, kind of foggy bottom, pinstripe suits, fancy hats. But in fact, it's a great art form. And it speaks to what we talked about the other day at Quincy, strategic empathy, which is stand in the other person's shoes. Don't condone, but try to understand and then move forward. The best thing I can say about diplomacy is it is an alternative to drone, you know, it's an alternative and it should be revived. Maybe it needs a different name, but I think it's a critical instrument of um, our world. Last question. Uh, I, I know earlier I had mentioned um, Brzezinski and I, I always yeah. found it interesting. One of his last pieces was um, a piece called uh, towards a global realignment. And I, I think we're in a global realignment yeah. and that we really have to deal with the fact that that's, you know, the world we're living in. I, I don't know that we're in the unipolar world anymore. I was wondering, do you think we're having trouble as a country dealing with the fact that it's not, you know, the 1990s anymore? That is the central question of our time. How America deals not with decline, but with no longer being the unipolar, exceptional, indispensable nation is the question of our time and how we manage that I would say gracefully, as opposed to going down screaming, which I think a lot of people in DC for the most part, I think around this country, people are less consumed with America being number one. I think people are more open to living their lives, maybe caring about trade, their communities, and not eager to send men and women, their sons and daughters off to, to battle an endless war 
So it's not isolationism, it's just a different engagement. But Brzezinski, it's interesting, he ran a center at Columbia and my late husband was teach was a fellow there. And there was another person studying, I think, uh, French politics, but Brzezinski said one of his greatest mistakes was bringing Steve into his program. <laughs> they disagreed vigorously on a number of things. But I do think Brzezinski, I'm interested, your audience is consumed with his personhood, but um, he, was a, he was a character. Um, and he was, a, he was not a good force, as we know in those years, because you had very clearly an alternative in Cy Vance, especially toward Russia. Anyway, but um, I think that is the central question of our time. Uh, and that is what animates quite a bit of our foreign policy and mindset. And people, just as the Republican Party is funding not just voter suppression, but voter subversion to keep off voters who are going to define this country, I think American diplomats or just you know war, armchair warriors are finding it very difficult to understand that there's a new world. Well, I want to thank you, Katrina Vandenhuvel, for coming on. Yeah. Parallax News. How can my listeners keep up with your work? I'm on Twitter, KVH Nation, and at thenation.com, I write, and I write a weekly column for the Washington Post, the outpost of some neocon, but open-minded in some ways, and um, the American Committee for East-West Accord, if you go to the website. Thank you. I'm grateful for this time. And now, a word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story. A memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katrina Vandenhuvel. I myself hope it's the first of many conversations to be had with Katrina as she is a thoughtful thinker and communicator who shares a belief with me in the value of diplomacy. Next up, we have retired Major General Dennis Leach to discuss a recent op-ed he co-wrote with retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson for the Military Times entitled Insurrection Has Led to Dereliction of Duty, which deals with the issue of vaccine insubordination in the U.S. military. Could give a bit of a longer introduction to retired Major Leach, but fortunately he gave a little background on himself 
in the interview to follow. So, with that in mind, maybe we should just get right to it. But first, again, a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Major General Dennis Leitch, someone who has worked with a few people that have been on the show, including Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. And also, I believe uh, you're familiar with another friend of the show, Andrew Basevich. Yes. Okay, that's great. Uh, so I wanted to have you on the show, uh, sir, because we're in the midst of this pandemic, and you had a very interesting article uh, with Larry Wilkerson at Military Times entitled, Insurrection Has Led to Dereliction of Duty. And this is about uh, the issue of vaccine insubordination. So I guess right off the bat, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why this particular issue uh, was something you wanted to write about with Larry. Well, uh, about myself, I, I spent 35 years in the um, uh, Army, retired in 2006 as the commander of the um, uh, 94th Regional Readiness Command at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. But uh, um, the, the issue here is one that uh, I think is fundamental to uh, good discipline and um, morale and uh, unit cohesion in the military. You know, we have... Uh, taken an oath to obey the lawful orders of those appointed above us. And uh, this is a lawful order to take a vaccine. And historically, uh, we've taken vaccines for any number of uh, maladies throughout our careers and never had any question. This issue has been politicized to the uh, detriment of good discipline and morale in the military. And um, it's a problem because we have a, uh, a, a vaccine that is working and works throughout society. And we have a lawful order to take the vaccine. And we have soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who decline to follow that, to, to obey that lawful order. And uh, this is uh, this, uh, uh, blow to military discipline and uh, cohesion. And at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have uh, senior leaders who who are not taking appropriate action in the in the opinion of Larry and I. Uh, when you have a lawful order that is being disobeyed, you don't uh, coddle people and uh, give them all sorts of uh, accommodation. You know what happens when a uh, soldier, for instance, um, declines to walk point? What happens when a soldier declines to uh, take an, take another order? 
military discipline falls apart and, and discipline and cohesion is a fundamental element of uh, military success. Why is that coddling happening though? I'm, I'm curious, do you have any insights on that or do you have a theory as to why that's happening? Well, there are, there are two reasons. The, the, the whole vaccine issue has been politicized throughout our society and a significant portion of those who serve in the military come from socio-religious uh, areas of the country that are less inclined to take vaccinations. The other, the other theory is that uh, it's difficult for uh, a, a um, all-volunteer force to, to, to get another 10 or 20 or 30,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to join the military. There's a, a great uh, issue with recruiting and um, strength and strength in the military. So it's a, it's a tough issue, but one that uh, we should not be held uh, 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 hostage to. Now, I know you've written about that before, the uh, all-volunteer force um, you have a book about it called Skin in the Game, uh, Poor Kids and Patriots, and uh, that deals with the issue of uh, the all-volunteer force. Maybe you could explain the thesis of the book and how it ties into this vaccination story. Yeah, the, the uh, theme of the book is to ask the question, is the all-volunteer force working and will it work in the future based on fairness, efficiency, and sustainability? And the other two questions that go hand in hand with that is whether the all volunteer force method of, of uh, manning our military adds to or, or facilitates the civil military gap and also the militarization of U.S. foreign policy. You know, the fairness issue is the one that, that really gets me because the um, uh, fact of the matter is that uh, we have a military today made up primarily of uh, those from the third and fourth socioeconomic quintiles of the country. And the first socioeconomic quintile is AWOL. You don't get bank presidents and uh, uh, road scholars uh, joining the military as we did during World War II. And it creates a problem that uh, is, is difficult to deal with. And the other side of it is at the other end, uh, it's very expensive. We're, we're now, the, the Army announced last week they were now paying $50,000 enlistment bonuses to those who joined the Army for six years. So if it's an all-volunteer force, why do we have to pay somebody to volunteer? $50,000 is a lot of money. With the all-volunteer force issue, I know this question probably comes up a lot. Uh, well, let's say we left this all-voluntary force. I mean, what would we replace it with? Uh, we have a draft again. Wouldn't it be possible for the wealthy to still sort of pay their way out of service? I think that uh, that's a legitimate question, but the first one that has to be answered is, is the all-volunteer force working? Is it fair? Is it efficient? And is it sustainable? And I think that the, the answer to all three of those is no. So to your point in, in terms of uh, what the alternative is, uh, there are a couple of alternatives that we, we radically downsize the military and don't become the uh, world's policemen that we have been for the past uh, 70 years. Or if we want to maintain the size of our force, we do it differently. Uh, I think that the, the drafts in the past have been very unfair. The Vietnam draft was very unfair. So if you could find a way to uh, fairly um, uh, assess people and talent uh, with a, a lottery-based fair draft, men and women, no exemptions, no deferments, 
with some alternatives. For instance, in my book, uh, I offer an alternative that says that uh, if you are drafted, you know, if, if your lottery number is called, you get one of three choices. Uh, you can, you can uh, go to the Army Reserve or the Marine Corps Reserve or the National Guard, the Army National Guard, for a six-year period. Uh, and if you are mobilized and deployed one year in that six-year military obligation is complete. The second one is you can go for two years in the active component and your military obligation is complete. The third one is if you want to go to college, that's great. We encourage you to do that, but you'll be in ROTC. And in the event you fail to gain a commission to ROTC, uh, you'll opt for option one or two. Now, you know, people say this is very unfair, but it's lottery based. We have lotteries all the time. And, you know, nobody ever said that the Powerball is unfair. Uh, it's a lottery-based system that uh, shares the burden across all of the uh, socioeconomic quintiles of our country and closes the civil military gap. Could you elaborate on that term? I have some listeners that have heard that term before, but they may be, uh, there's others that may be unfamiliar with it, the, the civil military gap. I've talked about it before with other guests. Yeah, the civil military gap is the gap between the American people and the military that, that protects it. Uh, we have a military that's drawn from a very small portion of the population today. Uh, it's not geographically distributed. The, uh, the South and the uh, Midwest is over, overrepresented, and uh, New England is basically AWOL. Uh, so we have a, a maldistribution and um, uh, socioeconomically and geographically. And it creates some problems. People just don't understand the military and the military resents the fact in some cases that the, they're, they're overburdened and uh, uh, look down on the rest of the population. So it's a, it's a problem that uh, didn't exist, for instance, during World War II and, and in other times in our nation's history when you had a, a more even distribution of military service throughout the population, both geographically and socioeconomically. If you could as well, could you talk about the actions the military, even even going up to uh, you know the Pentagon, have taken with regards to responding uh, to what you would say is a, a dereliction uh, of duty in regards to this uh, vaccine insubordination issue? Yeah, the uh, you know the the uh, the fact is that we're treating these people in some cases with kid gloves, and um, uh, you know they they should be expeditiously discharged from the military. And here's the thing, you know, when you when you have uh, you know the military touts the fact that 95 percent are 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 vaccinated, but the fact of the matter is that uh, the military is required to serve in tight quarters, uh, for instance, in a in a tank turret or in a submarine. Uh, what does it say to the 95% who are vaccinated, who've taken the responsibility to uh, uh, follow a lawful order when they're exposed in tight quarters to these 5% who are not? We're not taking care of soldiers. We're not, taking, we're not discharging our duty. The other one is that um, in, in our opinion, uh, these, uh, those who, who are discharged should not be discharged with kid gloves. You know, there are various uh, uh, classifications of discharge. And um, as a matter of fact, Congress has even uh, interceded and said that uh, those who are in the most recent national uh, NDAA, the defense budget, provided that only uh, uh, 
discharges that are honorable or, or general under honorable conditions. So what's honorable about a discharge that is the result of failing to follow a lawful order? It's disobedience. It's, it's insubordination. And um, we're tolerating it. So we're on a slippery slope that, that creates some real problems down the road, potentially, and it should be dealt with. The other thing is that, um, you know, we've had governors uh, uh, led by the governor of Oklahoma who have said that uh, their, their National Guardsmen do not need to be do not need to comply with the order. Well, you know, that uh, that sounds good and maybe politically expedient, but it creates some national security issues. How can you say that the uh, the National Guard is deployable and ready to go when they don't meet the standards? You know, 40 percent of those boots on the ground at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan belong to National Guardsmen and reservists. So there's one standard, one war, one uh, one one military. I was talking to a friend about this issue of uh, vaccine insubordination recently, and they said, well, is it really that big of an issue? Because, you know, most of the troops are getting vaccinated. So, you know, if, if there's these dissidents, they'll eventually be weeded out. Yeah, the, uh, the fact is that um, it's still a lawful order and you have a significant portion of 5% to 3, three to 5% who are disobeying, who are blatantly and openly disobeying a lawful order. That's uh, in the military, that's uh, intolerable. What happens when you have uh, uh, 3% to 5% who refuse to, uh, to take up arms, to, to refuse to move out, uh, who refuse to do the, the things that are required? The military is, is a tough life and um, uh, cohesion is important. You know, during the um, uh, debate about uh, don't ask, don't tell, the, the, the big justification that the Pentagon used for um, uh, discharging those who uh, were gay or lesbian in the military was that it adversely impacted morale, cohesion, and discipline. Well, what's the, what's the difference here? We, we, we discharged 13,000 uh, uh, highly qualified uh, me- members of our military simply for their sexual uh, orientation. So before we wrap up here, I guess, and you, you, you deal with this in the article itself, but uh, you know, I guess the, the counter to a lot of what you're talking about in this Military Times piece is that leaders would say, well, you know, we can't discharge large numbers of, of troops. It would weaken the military. And I, I think there's a, a good counter that both you and, and Larry have to that in the uh, Military Times piece. Well, the, uh, the, the fact is that you can't afford not to. Uh, you, you have a, a military that depends upon discipline, cohesion, morale, and this is a, an affront to the, that, uh, that very thing. And uh, to the extent that you, you uh, don't take appropriate action when uh, lawful orders are disobeyed, expedient, uh, uh, severe action, you open the military to a slippery slope that leads to uh, uh, insubordination across the board and um, uh, a failure of military organizations. This, this is a national security issue. And to the extent that the military allows itself to be politicized, it, it uh, damages national security and uh, uh, is, is not good for, demer- for America or democracy. And also, I mean, as you put it in the piece, 
you know, these people who are being insubordinate, uh, they're volunteers. They knew what they were getting into. Exactly. And they're not conscripts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They 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 took all the benefits and uh, now are, are uh, balking at uh, the flip side of their their obligation. And, um, you know, when when someone signs up for the military, they they take an oath and they, they basically sign a blank check to the American people payable with their lives. <clears throat> and it's a serious obligation that they take on. And um, we're uh, we're allowing people to to skate on that. I noticed that the title has the, the, the word um, insurrection in it. And, you know, a lot of people have been thinking about that word because of January 6th. And I, I'm not sure you can tie it in, but I think of, you know, uh, National Guard troops and the federal government and something you mentioned at the uh, end of the article where, you know, there's this question of what if there are service members that refuse to engage the enemy uh, or a governor declines to commit National Guard troops to the federal government when ordered to do so? Could you talk a little bit more uh, about that issue and you know the problems it could lead to down the road. Oh, it could be a serious problem. The uh, the um, uh, National Guard and the Army Reserve, uh, the reserve forces overall, uh, at the beginning of the the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, went from a, strate- a strategic reserve to an operational reserve. Um, you know, if there were a um, another Iraq size or Iran size. Uh, Iraq or Afghanistan-sized war, uh, the the uh, National Guard would certainly be part of that uh, mobilization. So it's a uh, it's a serious issue that uh, that needs to be dealt with. But you know these uh, these uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who were refusing the order knew exactly what they were getting into. They volunteered to become part of the military, but. I mean, who who is the most responsible ultimately at the end of the day? I mean, it, it seems like it goes even higher up than those soldiers that are insubordinate. Uh, you know, it's it's ultimately uh, the senior officials that have to you know, keep people in line. Absolutely, and that's that's the that's the dereliction of duty. I mean, it's it's senior senior people in the in the Pentagon who, in our opinion, are not responding appropriately to this in, this uh, insubordination. And the other, the other piece of it too. Let, let's be let's be candid here. There may be a concern on the part of uh, the senior people in the military that uh, those who are discharged expeditiously and, and with uh, um, uh, tough to, with bad paper discharge with insubor with uh, uh, bad discharges would be subject to and, and attractive uh, recruits to people like the uh, Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and others. So there, there may be that. I, I can't speculate on that, but that's certainly a, a possibility. But I, I don't think that that's a uh, justification for being held victim to uh, not taking appropriate action. I mean, you know, even if you look at uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, January 6th, actions to this point or response to this point, about 10 or 12% of those who are who have been uh, ch- uh, charged with uh, crimes related to the January 6th insurrection where it had military relations or they were veterans or still serving. And of the, the um, uh, 11 indicted for seditious conspiracy uh, last week, five of the 11 have military uh, experience. So um, 
it's it's an issue, but I don't think we should be held victim or rent or hostage to that. And also, these troops that are taking the vaccine shouldn't be held hostage by the the unvaccinated. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, they they, they we, we have an obligation to protect the, uh, the the well being of those who are serving. And if I'm told to to be in a uh, close quarter submarine and 5% of the crew is not uh, vaccinated uh, and I'm going to be on a six-month deployment with them, that's that's very unfair, irresponsible on the part of the senior leaders. So in closing here, what can be done? I mean, is this a matter of Congress needs to ask some very hard questions? You know, the, the American people, you say at the end, deserve an answer as well as Congress. How do we get to getting the questions answered? Well, this, uh, this is an example of a uh, specific example. Uh, I think that uh, we think that uh, the Pentagon has been given a, uh, a free pass for a long time. I mean, think about it. You know, we, we say in the introduction to the piece that kind of lays the groundwork that uh, the, the American people going back to the civil military gap hold the Pentagon and the military in high regard. The well, it's it's is, the one, it's not to interrupt you, I'm sorry. It's the one institution that is still sort of trusted by both sides of the political aisle, you know, at, at least with uh, everyday citizens. Yeah, and it's declining. The trust is declining. But here's the thing. When you look at it objectively and say that, uh, first of all, we have uh, uh, $750 billion a year we spend on national security, quote unquote national security, and we, uh, we can't uh, pass an audit in the Pentagon, so you can't tell where the money goes. The other thing is that if you look at the, the, the record of the military, notwithstanding the fact that they say that they, they uh, present themselves to the American people as the best led, best trained, best organized, most powerful military in the history of the, of the world, since World War II, look at the record of the military. We lost, we lost in, we, we tied in Korea, we lost Vietnam, we lost in Iraq, we lost in Afghanistan. And in the, in the meantime, got, got embarrassed in Syria, Mogadishu and Lebanon. So what football coach can keep his job with that sort of record? And at the same time, we continue to give the Pentagon an unlimited amount of money, $750 billion a year, and don't hold anybody accountable for where it went. They, they have not been able to pass an audit in, ever to pass a clean audit. The only government agency not able to pass a clean, to, to generate a clean audit. So we're, we're giving the American, we're, we're giving the Pentagon, the American people are giving the Pentagon a, a free pass. Do you think those issues related to declining trust in the military and, and in the article you mentioned uh, these internal problems such as the the sexual assault and uh, active duty and veteran suicides uh, that these are internal problems do you think that uh, a lot of these issues are compounding and that we're going to continue to see a decline in trust of the institution yes i would think so i would think so i, I at least let me, let me put it this way i hope so in that, in that as the American people in Congress become more aware of the, um, the issues, uh, trust will decline. Last thing here, just because I, I had only, only thought of it just now is, I, I think when we talk about these issues, there's a certain type of person that will assume that how can you be 
uh, questioning this institution that is uh, unpatriotic. And I actually think it's people like ourselves that are the, the most patriotic because we're trying to make these institutions better. Well, that's exactly it. I, I think that, um, I forget who said it, but uh, I think it may have been um, Thomas Jefferson said that um, informed dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Major General Dennis Leitch, for coming on Parallax Views. And I recommend everyone read uh, the article you co-wrote with Larry Wilkerson in the Military Times entitled Insurrection Has Led to Dereliction of Duty. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. And that wraps it for our conversation with retired Major General Dennis Leach. Next up, our final interview for this edition of the program, Libertarian Economist David R. Henderson joins me to discuss why he believes we don't have to fight wars for oil. It's a narrative that many have bought into over the years, and I was interested in getting David's take after Doug Bondow, who has been on the program before to talk about foreign policy issues, suggested that maybe David could discuss this issue on my program. So, without further ado, let's get to the conversation with David R. Henderson on the question of whether we really need to have wars for oil. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that was recommended to me by friend of the show, Doug Bondow, uh, David R. Henderson. And I believe uh, I'm familiar with David's work through his writing, his occasional writing at uh, antiwar.com. Is that correct? And how are you doing today? That's correct. I'm doing well, JG. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. And we're going to be talking today about uh, the issue of uh, oil prices and and uh, things of that nature. And I was recommended to you by Doug Bandow, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, because I was wondering how to broach the topic of whether or not we need to go to war for oil. And you've written about that uh, for the Independent Institute and uh, whether, you know, we need to bend over backwards for other countries when it comes to oil to keep prices down. And I was wondering What's your general take on that subject? My general take is that we don't have to worry about that. And the reason basically is people, whatever country they're in, who produce oil want to sell it. And so they're going to sell it even if they hate us. And some of them do hate us, but they're going to sell it to us anyway. So I guess the, the big thing that gets talked about when this issue is broached is uh, what about the 1970s? What about the, the Carter years and you know the, the oil shock that happened? Uh, could you speak a little bit to that and maybe for my listeners that are a bit on the younger side, maybe explain to them what happened uh, during that period? Yeah, let's take a little trip down memory lane. I'm gonna start with August 15th, 1971. That's a key date. That was the day, it was a Sunday. I remember it, I was 20 years old. That was the day that President uh, uh, Nixon imposed a wage price freeze. He said, it is illegal for you to raise a wage or a price by even a penny for 90 days. 
And then they they went from that was called phase one to phase two, where they'll allow some increases. Well, here's what happened. Think about oil prices at the time, $3 a barrel. What happens in October 1974? OPEC gets powerful. OPEC gets together and raises the price of oil to $11 a barrel over a few months. That's essentially a quadrupling. Well, the price controls that we had domestically didn't allow for oil prices to go up domestically, didn't allow for gasoline prices to go up. And so we had prices that were artificially low. And as any economist can tell you, when the price is below what the market price would have been, you're going to have more people demanding more, you'll have people demanding more than is supplied. And we had shortages and lineups. So that started with Nixon, carried over into Ford. I, I think I said October 74, October 73, because it was Nixon. By October 74, Ford was the president. Carried over into Ford and into Carter. And so we had periodic uh, lineups for gasoline through that period. It also, by the way, strengthened OPEC's hand because we didn't have as much domestic production competing with world production. Now, there's this myth out there that the reason we had the uh, the price that we had this problem getting oil was that OAPIC, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, had imposed an embargo against the United States and Netherlands because of their support for Israel. Now, that's all true. They did that. But that doesn't explain what happens because, of course, we were able to get our oil from other places. And so every country faced that $11 a barrel price of oil. So that's kind of the story. Now, actually, I started thinking about this. I, I, I used to teach a class in energy econ economics at the Naval Postgraduate School. And the first day I told my students that uh, I have to thank Presidents Nixon, Ford and Carter for turning me into an energy economist, because I saw so much absurd policy happening under all three of them. I started writing about it, and giving speeches about it. And so in 1979, I did a piece in Libertarian Review laying out, you know, how how bad it could be. And that was when, you know, and, and here was the, here was the issue. If they cut off our supply, how much would the world, if they cut the supply of oil, how much would the world price go up? And I took extreme data, but in the 80s, we got better data. And here's why, because Saddam Hussein was unable to defeat Iran. So there was very, essentially very close to zero risk that Saddam Hussein would ever be able to take over Iran. So when the invasion of Kuwait happened in August 1990, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying, here's the worst case, and I don't even believe the worst case, but here's the worst case. Saddam Hussein holds on to Kuwait, managed to grab the Saudi Arabia, which is a, that's a tough push, and the United Arab Emirates. Real, real quick, yeah. not to interrupt you, but I was gonna sure. mention no problem. just for no problem. Uh, my listeners, you know, in that lead up uh, to uh, the Gulf War, um, you know, in, in Bush, the seniors uh, years, yeah. you know, essentially he was invoking energy crisis in the yeah. lead up to that conflict. Yes, he was. And in fact, the first paragraph of my article in the Wall Street Journal quoted 
uh, stated that both he, Secretary of State James Baker, and the ever-present Henry Kissinger were always all all saying that we could be in this dark, you know, world recession. And I said, no way. And here's what my calculations showed. So at the time, world output and consumption was 60 million barrels a day. Fortunately, we were past the price controls. Carter and, and Reagan got rid of those. So you can buy gasoline if the price goes up. There's no, there are no price controls. You aren't going to have shortages. You might have higher prices. You aren't going to have shortages. How much higher will the prices be? What I pointed out is in that extreme case, where Saddam Hussein holds on to Kuwait, takes over United Arab Emirates, takes over Saudi, Saudi Arabia, he controls 12 million barrels a day, which is a fifth of world output. Now, that's a large percent. But I did another calculation, not in the article, showing that the most he would cut output is 4 million barrels a day. Well, 4 million is 7% of 60 million. So now we're getting down to a, a much smaller number. There is a little problem. The demand for oil is what economists call inelastic. When the price goes up, the quantity demanded doesn't fall much. What that means is when the quantity falls a little, the price goes up a lot. So I used a fairly tough estimate, a, a low estimate of elasticity demand, and calculated that in that worst case, Saddam Hussein could raise the price of oil by, let me think what it was, um, it was by, tw from tw by 35%. Well, here's the thing. What would that mean for us? We were producing roughly half of the oil that we were using and importing roughly half. So the amount that we as consumers pay to our oil companies for the oil they're producing, we don't like it as consumers, but it's not a loss to the United States. It goes to oil companies. The loss to the United States as a whole is to these other producers uh, selling, us, selling us imports. And what I calculated was that the loss would be on the order of $20 billion a year in a $5 trillion economy. So a little under half a percent of GDP. So that this idea that we're going to be thrown into this really deep recession was absurd. Now, here's what was interesting. Baker was saying, oh, it's about oil. Um, my piece came out in the Wall Street Journal, an author for an a, a editorial writer for the Washington Post wrote an editorial that year, that, that weekend, it was a Labor Day weekend, around my piece, a guy named Richard Harwood, and basically crediting me for that insight. And then I looked at Baker's testimony the Tuesday after Labor Day, and he had taken out that as an argument at all. So it kind of had an impact maybe on what they argued for. Unfortunately, it didn't have an impact on what I cared about, which is that we shouldn't go to war for oil. So anyway, that was kind of the, 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 that was my reasoning back then. Since then, it's got even better because of fracking. With fracking, we're producing a much higher percent of the oil we use and the natural gas we use. And so now, if I ran through the same numbers, and I didn't do it, but if I ran through the same numbers, it would show an even smaller loss to the US economy if some other country uh, cuts output. I was gonna add too, I think when people talk about um, going to war for oil or, you know, well, we're, we're dependent on uh, Saudi Arabia. And I, I know we're not gonna talk about 
U.S.-Saudi relationship uh, relations necessarily here. But I, I think that one thing that gets left out of that, uh, and I've, I've talked to other people about this, like Robert Vitalis, um, who's a professor. He's actually uh, more on the, the left-wing end of things, but I, I think he references you and others in his book, Oil Craft. He said to me, you know, one of the elephants in the room that gets left out of these conversations is that we're not just dependent on other countries when it comes to the oil trade. They're also dependent on us. Bingo. Bingo. Trade. I'm, I've got to look this guy up. <laughs> trade is about mutual dependence. And in my longer piece I wrote for independent for the Independent Institute that you referenced, I pointed this out that we, we, when when someone says we're dependent, I picture a little scene from Oliver Twist, you know, please, sir, I want some more. You know, this guy who's completely dependent on people at this orphanage. No, it's mutual dependence. We depend on them for oil. They depend on us for money. And so that's what trade is. So Adam Smith, who's one of my heroes who wrote The Wealth of Nations, has this famous quote. I think it's the most famous one in the book. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we get our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Well, similarly, it's not from the benevolence of the Saudis, the Iraqis, the Iranians that we expect our oil, but from their regard for their own self-interest. So then what would you say to people that still have this sort of view uh, that, that it's all about the oil, that, you know, we go to war for oil? What, what do you think the, the way to break through that mentality is? I think we need to distinguish between whether the argument for, for going to war for oil is a strong one and whether people believe it. So you might have people in the administration believing it, as I think happened under Nixon, Ford and Carter. So Carter started the Rapid Deployment Force, which then became CENTCOM under Reagan. And it was because they were seriously thinking about invading some country to get oil. And there was this guy, Edward, Edward Lutwak, a serious scholar in international relations, who wrote a piece uh, back, which I quoted in my independent review or, uh, study, saying we should attack Saudi Arabia because that's where the oil is. It's kind of like the old, you know, that guy, um, Willie Sutton, when asked, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. Well, this guy was advocating attacking Saudi Arabia because that's where the oil was. So in other words, what I'm getting at is I'm not arguing that people didn't sincerely believe that. I just think that belief is absolutely wrong. And now I think it is also true that some people may argue for war who understand my argument, but just want the United States to have this big role in the world at, at, you know, in controlling things, controlling other governments. There's still a lot of that, as I'm sure you know, in the United States. So then just to reiterate, what causes these high prices when it comes to if we're not going to be blaming being dependent on other countries, then what should we be saying is the cause? Okay, so there's a huge controversy among economists. So we used to say when OPEC got very powerful in 1973, we called it a cartel. But there's a huge controversy among economists 
about whether it really is a cartel. And I don't know enough to say, and I think most people, most energy economists don't know enough to say, uh, but it is the case that whether it's a cartel or just a, a, a bunch of countries that have decided to cut output, the point is that it's, it's supply and demand that drives prices. So, so if supply is lower, all other things equal, if supply falls, all other things equal, prices will go up. And I checked the data to prepare for this interview, and I was shocked. I just hadn't checked it in a, a year or two. But I remember a few years ago, the world production and consumption of oil was 90 million dollars a day, 90 million barrels a day. Now it's around 75 or so. So that is a dramatic reduction. So a lot of people claim, you know, blame Biden. I love to blame Biden for things, but only when he's responsible for things. And this isn't one of them. This is a reduction in world output. Now, what I would say is the way to have us have prices be a little lower is to allow oil production in United States. And so, and that's not because it makes us less dependent per se, it's because it adds to world supply. And I, I was going to add to that, I know there's a lot of arguments over energy uh, independence. You know, a lot of people in the US want that. I think you've been more critical of that, correct? Yes, right. Could you uh, speak as to why maybe? Yeah, I, I believe no more in oil independence than I believe in coffee independence. I mean, if we could be independent in coffee, we could get a lot more from Hawaii, we could build greenhouses in the United States, and it'd be very expensive. So I don't, in order to get oil independence, now we're close to it now, but in order to get it a few years ago, we would have had to really cut off world supply and raise the price. And, and I don't, you know, it's, it, the, the case for trade in oil, free trade in oil, is similar to the case for free trade in coffee or free trade in bananas. So there's nothing magic about oil independence. And notice that for a few months before the COVID crisis, we were actually slightly net exporters of oil. We were actually producing slightly more than we were consuming, but we're still subject to world prices. We've got a market. We don't have tariffs on oil. We don't have export controls on oil. So we're st we still have a world market and the price goes up and down with world oil supplies and demands. And we still face the world price as a result. So before we close out, I know I mentioned earlier that you've written for uh, antiwar.com. Uh, yes. I consider them uh, good friends of the show. We may disagree on other issues outside of foreign policy, but right. I, you know, I think we all need to come together on the issue of uh, peace and diplomacy. And yeah. I was curious, since we're talking about war and oil, maybe we could go over the, the costs of war and does it affect our ability to trade, um, to be involved in the oil trade? Are there setbacks that war can cause? Well, yes. Um, well, for, so I'm going to talk about the setbacks as far as oil goes and then setbacks generally from war. Let's say the U.S. government said, we're going to make war on Saudi Arabia, something like that, which would be really dumb. No one's advocating it, fortunately. But if you did that, what would happen to the world oil supply? It would fall. So the thing you're worried about, if you argue that we should go to war because we're worried about the Saudis' effect on the oil supply. You make war on the Saudis. It's hard to imagine a scenario in which oil supply isn't cut for a while while the war's going on. So the world price goes up. 
So the thing we're worried about is in fact caused by the measure we're taking to deal with the thing we're worried about. But more generally, war is extremely destructive. It's extremely destructive. It's hard to find, you know, that, that guy, um, what's his name in Chicago, wrote a book called uh, uh, The Good War. I can't remember his name. Famous guy. And he says World War II was the good war. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It had a better claim to that than World War I, but still, it's very hard to make that claim. And, and so, you know, war is incredibly destructive. So you look at World War II, United States lost about 405,000 people during the war. We lost six civilians in Oregon, these high school students. Um, and Japan lost a couple of million. Germany lost millions. Russia lost 20 some million. It's in, war is just incredibly destructive. And it's just, it's hard for me to conceive of a reason having anything to do with getting goods elsewhere that justifies a war. And by the way, we are fortunate. We have two major barriers to people ever invading us. They're called the Atlantic and the Pacific. And so it's very hard to conceive of a scenario where someone really badly threatens us. If there were a threat to come, the most plausible threat wouldn't be from Canada, where I'm from, A, originally. It would be from Mexico. But even that is a very, very low probability event. And so we're fortunate. And it's too bad because why not take advantage of that? Why not avoid entangling alliances? Why not just say, let's cut the size of the military by 60 to 80%, get out of those foreign bases, let Europe defend itself because it's now very wealthy. Let Japan defend itself, it's very wealthy. Why not do all that and avoid putting our blood and treasure at risk? Yeah, and if I could add to that, I, I think we see that getting involved in these wars in the Middle East didn't necessarily uh, help with the issues uh, for us here at home or for Middle Eastern countries. And it's it's interesting because I think I've, I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the, the reason we didn't want to have this Iran deal was because of, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, now we're seeing Saudi Arabia and Iran are sort of naturally talking to each other more as there's a potential for us to get back into uh, the Iran deal um, and, uh. and to accept, uh, you know, diplomacy as uh, a possible solution for these problems rather than, you know, war. So I don't think it's true that if we don't go to war, then these issues won't be worked out another way through diplomacy. That's right. And by the way, one of the, they, they get worked out through diplomacy and also through trade. I remember when I, in um, 2001, I was in Washington, D.C. to give a talk somewhere. And I took a cab and I always like talking to cab drivers about what they think. And this guy was a, from Pakistan. And I and at the time, things were really heating up between Pakistan and India. And that's always been an issue. That's been an issue for a long time. And I said I was worried about whether there might be war between the two. And he said, I'm not. And I said, why? He said, because trade between the two is five times what it was, you know, 20 years earlier. 
And so here's this guy, I don't know what his education was, but here's this guy teaching a PhD economist economics, because I should have thought of that. You know, tr trade makes us uh, less likely to engage in war. There's a famous line that's attributed to a French economic journalist, very free market economic journalist named Frederick Bastier. Unfortunately, he didn't say it, but it's a great line anyway. When goods don't cross borders, armies will. And the point is, you know, one of the ways you can go to war, and it's not a sure thing, but one of the ways you get into war is by restricting trade. One of the ways you make war less probable, not zero probability, but less probable is by having lots of trade. So is there anything else we should mention uh, in closing about this whole issue of uh, war and, and oil? Uh, anything that I didn't uh, necessarily get to in the course of our conversation thus far? Well, there is something that didn't come up, and maybe it's because you don't hold the myth. But there was, I remember when people would say back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, how much do we get from particular countries? And I, I, I always said it doesn't matter because it's a world market. So let's say a country, country, uh, let's make up an example. Saudi Arabia sells us oil and they need to, they decide to hurt us by selling us less. But let's say they want to maintain production. They're going to sell it somewhere else. And then the people who would, who had been buying um, from their suppliers, those suppliers now have more oil to sell and we buy from them. And the analogy I used in my independent review, independent institute study was a game of musical chairs, except that the number of chairs equals the number of players, which will be a very boring game that would go on forever. But in, in, in international trade, boring is good, not bad. So the only way a country can hurt us with the so-called oil weapon is by cutting the amount it produces. But that doesn't just hurt us, that hurts all consumers, even those consuming countries who are their friends. And it helps all producers, including producing countries that are their enemies. So if Iraq, say, had gotten hold of this oil and cut the oil supply, that would have helped Iran. And that's not something they'd necessarily want to do. And so that's the point. It's an it's 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 an international market. Never forget that it's a world market, and don't look at the particular entities we're buying from, because it doesn't matter that much, except for differences in transportation costs. I also wanted to get your comment. I have a pretty broad range of listeners, so I, I have people from the libertarian end. I have people from the yeah. sort of Bernie Sanders left, and even you know some centrists. Um, right. How do you sort of talk about these issues in a way? where I know you come from the sort of libertarian perspective on things, right. the free market perspective. Is there a way to talk about this issue without necessarily getting caught up in, you know, a uh, like the, the sort of partisan politics of it all? I think there is. And I think we've been doing it. Uh, so I gave a talk at Berkeley in the early 2000s, UC Berkeley, in which I talked about these issues and, you know, the audience there, some libertarians, but also a fair number of leftists, I would think, and they liked it. I mean, I think that if you are coming to the bottom line they like, and you're using arguments they haven't heard, but 
they let themselves realize that the arguments kind of make sense, it's going to work. So that that's how I've done it. Um, and with with fairly good success. And uh, also in closing, and I know this, this is a little bit adrift of the oil topic, but I'm curious, where do you see things headed when it comes to the issues of war and peace and, and diplomacy? Uh, because I, I think the past 20 years, uh, we've had a lot of military adventurism, and yeah. I think a lot of younger people have become fed up with that. I yeah. don't know if that's true of all the Washingtonians or what uh, people yeah. like Doug Bondal have called the blob, but I'm hopeful yeah. that maybe going forward, we may have a little bit more restraint when it comes to uh, these issues of war and peace. Well, I'm hopeful too, but I can't point to good evidence behind that hope. I mean, okay, I'll point to one. I think it was great that Biden got out of Afghanistan. It was messy. It should have been done much better, but at least he got out. Now, will he stay out? I think so, but I'm not sure. Um, so there's one good thing that happened. What I don't like is this new Cold War that seems to be happening between the United States and China over not much. Like, it just, you know, and, and okay, I shouldn't say not much. The way the Chinese government treats some of its people, like the Uyghurs, is that how you say it, is horrible. Um, the way they've treated people in Hong Kong is horrible. I think they are a real threat to Taiwan. But that's not us. And I don't really want to put Los Angeles at risk to defend Taiwan. But back to the question you asked, which is, where do I think things are going? I am concerned. Um, Trump, interestingly enough, talked a good game about not getting as much in other countries' affairs. But I, you know, people talk about various aspects of them. I think one thing that's missed is he's probably one of the most intellectually lazy presidents we've had in my lifetime. And so he didn't read much. He didn't think much about it. And so if he was going to have a serious non-interventionist foreign policy, he was going to have to get the right people in place to do it. John Bolton's not the right person. And so, you know, he didn't do what I think his instincts said he should do. And I think Biden's instincts are worse. So, you know, it's not it's not a happy situation. Um, that, I mean, maybe these huge budget deficits will finally somewhat constrain military spending. That's a slim read, but that's what I got. Well, we did just have the, the massive um, budget pass for the Pentagon. So on that end, that's a little bit more dreary. Yeah. But uh, it, it's interesting, too, with the. Um, this buildup of, of a potential new Cold War. Do you think it it may not get to that point? Because I, I was talking to uh, Mike Swanson of the Wall Street Window recently, and uh, he's of the opinion that, you know, we can't do with China what happened with uh, the U.S. and the USSR, where we're economically blockading each other constantly just because the global economy, uh, yeah. you know, we're, we're so dependent on each other. Uh, do you think that may prevent a more heated conflict from arising? I think it might. And let me let me tell you a true story and then a little interpretation on top of it. And by the way, I want to I want to underline your point. USSR had almost nothing to sell us. I mean, they were a socialist communist economy producing crap. China has large amounts of private private free enterprise, relatively free compared to the USSR. And so they produce a lot of stuff we like buying. 
And I do think, again, trade makes war less likely. So remember when that um, airplane, that electronic uh, surveillance airplane was forced to land in Hainan, is that how you say it, in March or April of 2001, Bush's first few months in office. And they were held there for a while. By the way, one of my, I taught at the Naval Postgraduate School. One of my students later was on that plane. And so she was a prisoner for about whatever it was, 10 days. And a lot of people were worrying about that. And it got resolved quite peacefully. And I remember, so, so that's what I know. At the time, we had a huge amount of trade with China. I know that too. I remember there was someone, and I can't remember who it was, but there was someone who was kind of uh, a pipeline, a, a, a liaison between the business community like Walmart and so on, and the White House. And I think they went to Bush and said, don't mess this up. You know, you got this good thing going with trade. Don't mess it up with something stupid. And they worked it out. And so, you know, that, that did work out. By the way, I asked my student, how were you treated there? Like, what did you what did you think? And she said she was reasonably confident things were going to work out and they were treated relatively well, which was nice to hear. So I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, David R. Henderson. And also, I believe the book you were mentioning earlier, uh, The Good War, that was Studs Terkel, right? Studs Terkel. I, I always have trouble <laughs> with that name. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank right. you so much uh, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work uh, or, or anything you uh, do today? Okay, so two things. Uh, I blog about 20 to 25 times a month at EconLog. And the way to find that is go to econlib.org and check for EconLog. Those are on economic issues, not as much on foreign policy issues, but occasionally I do. But I am putting together a book of my best antiwar.com articles and other articles I've written, and I'm close. <laughs> it's turning into too big a book, so I'm thinking of making it into two books. So I think that's that'll be sometime in the first half of 2022. And uh, title yet to be chosen, tentative title, Being American in the World. And the idea is, I moved here from Canada, as I mentioned, and I had this image of what United States was or could be. And it, it was like Ronald Reagan's shining city on a hill, where you set an example for the world by having good policies, freedom, and so on, but don't mess around and interfere in other countries' affairs. And that's how I think we should be American in the world. Well, I'm going to have to hold this, uh, hold you to this. You have to come back on the show once the, the, the book comes out, because yeah, I, I do like your writing at antiwar.com a lot. Well, thanks, JG. I very much, and this was a great interview. You asked good questions, and uh, we managed to cover the, the landscape, I think. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed that triple feature. Let me know what you think by dropping me a line on Twitter or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com. And of course, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views then please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. 
Again, that's patreon.com slash parallax use. I should be adding new content to the $5 tier and above portion of the Patreon. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, Jamie, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho, who, by the way, is now running for Senate, I believe, in North Carolina under the Green Party ticket. Wishing the best of luck to Matthew, who has been a really great listener and asset to this show. He's been a huge supporter and has helped me get on a number of guests. In any case, I'm burning the midnight oil here. I have to get going. But uh, if you'd like your very own producer's credit, like Matthew or any of the other $10 tier and above supporters, well, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. $10 tier and above gets you a producer's credit shout out. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.